This is Care Less, Do More. Hey there, and welcome back to Care Less, Do More. Today is Halloween, a day that marks the end of summer and the beginning of the dark, cold winter, which is great news for us. This holiday is ancient, like 2,000 years old. I'm currently prepping for the onslaught of trick-or-treaters at my house as I happen to live in the neighborhood where all the kids visit. More importantly, November is Native American Heritage Month. It's a time to pay tribute to the rich ancestry and traditions of Native Americans. With that being said, I'm going to leave a few suggestions in the show notes on books to read and other resources for continued learning. One of my favorite all-time books is Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, and its pages are filled with indigenous wisdom, scientific knowledge, and the teachings of plants. For those of us focused on the outdoors, it's a great book to dive into and learn. Additionally, I've got to recommend you go watch Spirit of the Peaks, even if you've already seen it. It's an incredible film featuring and made by Connor Ryan, who happens to be our guest on the show today. Connor is so well-spoken, introspective, and conscious in how he speaks, and at times it leaves me speechless which as a host is a funny place to be. His perspective broadens mine and I'm personally incredibly thankful for all that he has given to the ski industry and our extended community. If you don't know who Connor Ryan is, you're in for a treat and I'll leave it at that as he says it best. Before we dive into this episode, I'd like to thank our supporters over at Rumple. They have puffy blankets and so much more, but really the puffy blankets are a must in your outdoor collection of gear to keep you warm. I bring mine everywhere with me and I use it quite often. It's also getting super cold outside right now and I was lucky enough to receive the CoLab blanket with one of my favorite designers, Nicole McLaughlin, which lives on my couch along with her first of its kind, pack mat, the ultimate tote which doubles as a mat. Great for picnics, days at the crag, keeping your feet clean. Nicole always tends to find multiple and plentiful uses of things and I'm so hyped that she did a CoLab with Rumple. All right. Welcome to Care Less, Do More. Connor Ryan is our guest today. I'm so excited to have you on the show. Can you give me a little background on who you are? Yeah, for sure. Uh, I'm Connor Ryan. Uh, I'm Papa Lakota, professional skier. Um, yeah, and just a filmmaker and an overall kind of just just voice, I think, within skiing for uh, for the native land that we all ski on. Thank you so much for joining me. That was a very abbreviated version of who you actually are and who you, I don't know, I guess over the past few years of kind of following your journey and everything, I've really, you just like hold this special place within the industry and your voice and you're so intricate and well thought when you post on Instagram. It's like such a pleasure to follow you and listen to you. And yeah, I don't know. I was reading a little interview where Lynn had a quote and he said, you're driven, articulate, verbose, and intensely self-reflective. And I was like, yep, yep, I agree with that. (laughs) Where did he say that? That's my friend. I didn't even know he liked me that much. He loves you. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) it was good. Um, So I want to know just like, yeah, where do you come from? You were born and raised in Boulder, Colorado, and I'd love to hear your start with skiing in the outdoors. Yeah, for sure. Um, So... Like I, I usually say like my story starts before my story a little bit. Um, so my grandfather was born uh, on the Standing Rock Indian Reservation, which is kind of on the border of South Dakota and North Dakota. And um, when he was a kid, you know, that was back in the time of the of the residential schools, of the boarding schools. And so um, they took him from from his homelands there and he ended up uh, being in World War Two, was a prisoner of war 
lived in LA. Um, and that's where my mom was born was in Los Angeles. And then she lived her life in uh, her young life in like Dallas area, and then moved to Colorado um, to try to go to to go to school at the University of Colorado, and fell in love with the place. And I came about and you know, she raised me as a as a single mom to start things off. And so I, I wasn't necessarily uh, on the track to end up a skier. Uh, having, you know, that as as my background and my history, there's not a lot of Native American folks within the sport of skiing, even though it all happens on our lands. Um, but I, I was, you know, privileged to be that, that my dad's white um, and loved skiing and took me to Eldora uh, and taught me how to ski when I was, you know, early on in grade school. And that was something that just really stuck with me. Um, you know, when I was in the third or fourth grade, if you'd have asked me what I was going to be when I grew up, like I was either going to be, you know, Tom Cruise in Top Gun, or I was going to be like Johnny Mosley, right? And those were like the two, or, or maybe uh, Jeremy Bloom was really my guy too, because he was yes. playing football for CU and skied where we lived. But that was what my whole world was kind of all about at that time. And then uh, as I got older, my dad's company went out of business um, and I wasn't able to ski anymore. And so it's not something I really did from about like fifth grade till I was 21. Um, and then when I was 21, uh, I got a good job for the first time and I worked nights and I was like, what am I going to do all day long? And so I got into skiing and from there kind of just year by year, uh, skiing just took over my life, like more and more and more. And here I am now, like, uh, you know, able to do this full time and, and provide, I think like a, a perspective in the sport that I think is needed, but also has just been like so embraced. Um, people like yourself, your good friend, Cody Townsend, like uh, you folks have just like pulled me in since, since I really started to be like, oh, should I share my voice? And so that's, that's been a really cool part of, you know, getting embraced by a, a community that, that like, you once looked up to and, you know, maybe didn't, didn't think that there was a pathway to you becoming a part of. Mm -hmm. You touched on something there with uh, talking about Johnny Mosley being someone who you looked up to actually, and, and that like welcoming people into their sport. He was my guest speaker at like my fifth grade graduation. I think it must've been right after he won the gold medal. And that's a big deal, right? Like gold, Olympic gold medalist, you're in middle school. And I remember this day where I was a ski racer and he like basically rode the chair with me at Palisades and he was like, have you ever skied in the moguls? And I was like, no, actually there's like a little rift between the racers and the moguls years. <laughs> and he invited me to come into the like mogul zone with him but I remember him like lifting up the rope and me seeing all my friends that we would like talk shit back and forth and he just like brought me into the course and taught me how to ski moguls and that was like this moment where I was like wow when someone really opens up that door and just like brings you in you want to be a part of that and so I read that like through your connection with Lynn and Natives Outdoors that's how he introduced you to Cody yeah yeah well and uh Land kind of pranked me on that one, which is like, he was like, oh, we're going to do this ski trip, this ski trip in the LaSalle's. And I'd always wanted to ski the LaSalle's. I went to Moab once for spring break with my family when I was in, in 
middle school, I think. And I was like, what? They have mountains like this, you know, above the canyon lands. Like, I was so in just off of that. And he's like, yeah, well, we're going to ski in the LaSalle's with my buddy Cody. And I was like, I don't know who Cody is. Sounds like a white guy. Like, all the guys in skiing are. Like, that's cool. Whatever. Like, I don't need to. I didn't ask any more questions beyond that because I just, like, didn't. <laughs> I didn't consider that a possibility. Um, but for me at the time, like, Cody was definitely my my favorite skier. Like, the crack to me, like, that line to me is, like, the epitome of, like, what I strive for in skiing. Like, it's so gnarly, but it's really just about, like, fast, like, pure skiing. Um, and anyway, so uh, he was a hero of mine, but I didn't, I didn't think that was a possibility. And I showed up, and I actually got lost. Uh, I drove, like, I, I drove around in and lived out of the back of a Prius back then, which is kind of crazy considering like, I'm like six, five. Yeah. Uh, right. <laughs> and so I got that thing lost on some like four wheel drive road way back in the way back by the LaSalle's Len had to come find me and like pull me out of the mud. And so I get to my campsite at like two in the morning and we're getting up for like an Alpine start. So I didn't say anything to anyone. Everybody's already asleep. And I just wake up and I'm, you know, parked next to these, uh, this truck in this van, which at the time, like Cody didn't even have a van yet. Only Bjarne had a van. Like this was OG season one, 50 project stuff. <laughs> and so I hear some noise in the morning and I literally like pop out of the hatchback of a Prius. Um, and I'm like, Oh my God, that's, that's Cody Townsend. No and, way. Yeah. And so that was how, how I got to know him. And I just looked at Landon. I was like, what the hell? Like, what are we doing? Um, Bjarne's starts micing me up and stuff. And he's like, yeah, man, like this is the 50 project. And I was <laughs> like, what, what are you talking about? Uh, no and so that's way. where it started for me. And like, uh, that was kind of like the spark of a bromance for Cody and I, um, we just really connected that day on that tour. It was a long one. Like, a decent little, not not like long in like a 50 project sense, but like long in the sense of like all day kind of approach. Um, and so we just got to talking and really connected, connected around the campfire. Um, yeah. And then like, you know, it goes off into the editing world once it's already filmed. And I was like, dang, well, that was cool. Like a cool one-off experience. And like, maybe I'll get a couple lines in a 50 project episode. Um, and then Cody called me like towards the end of summer after that and was like, Hey, would it be cool if we used your voiceover to like narrate the whole episode? And I was like, what? And so him making that choice and including me in that way and that turning into the friendship mentorship, uh, kind of relationship that we've had for me was the thing that really kickstarted like my whole, my whole ski career um was just that connection with him and after that I you know I asked him like uh would you mentor me and he was like I'm gonna mentor you um but I usually say no because like a lot of people ask me this like just with the position that I'm in um but for you like I know you're gonna make it regardless and so when you do I don't want to be part of the story I don't want to be the guy that you tried to make it in spite of because I know you'll make it <laughs> And that was like somehow like maybe to him just saying that, you know, was more uh, reassuring and affirming than anything like he said to me as a 
mentor since then. Um, not that he hasn't said a lot of great things, but that was just a huge statement on his part. And so, yeah, from there on, I kind of just, I got, I got pulled in and, and initiated. And so, yeah, now the ski community is kind of, I don't know, it, it feels I, I'm getting used to belonging here, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. That must have been such a like wild waking up and like, okay, we're going to mic you up. You're on the 50 project. Like mm-hmm. so many people have that dream, actually. That's amazing. Yeah, it was crazy. And I was so nervous and Bjarne couldn't get my name right. I think it's in the episode, but I just remember it from that morning of him being like, Conrad, Conry. No. Like, and I was like, oh my God. Like, this it's is not so that hard. Crazy. It's Connor. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, I'm sure that mentorship for you and Cody, though, goes both ways. And I think that's what makes the best mentorship is when both parties learn from each other and grow. Yeah, I think that's that's like the biggest part of it. And I'm sure you've experienced that a lot. But I think like the best mentorships really are like exchanges. Um, Because I just think if there's not like a reciprocal nature to any sort of relationship, whether it's with the people we ski with or the places that we ski or, or whatever it might be like one party <laughs> is going to quickly get used up in in a relationship like that. And so it, it's been really cool over the course of the years to have been a resource to one another. Cause I think that we filmed that in like 2019, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know if anybody else has been paying attention since 2019, but like a lot of stuff has happened in the world (laughs) yeah it's been great to to have you know that that kind of connection and i think like uh the port you know into the ski industry as well to be able to provide some of those insights yeah it's one of the best connections to have cody townsend he's doing it right that guy is going viral (laughs) yeah he's he's the model for sure i think the, the, the blueprint that a lot of us are looking at like whoa Yeah. Yeah. What kind of advice did he give you when you first got into the ski industry that stuck with you and that you feel like was some of the most valuable words? I mean, honestly, like the first biggest thing he did, um, and, and this like kind of just shows how like roots of a spot I was starting from, but, uh, he sent me his old boots and a beacon and cause I had like a tracker one, like a two antenna, like old school beacon um and i was touring in these like 100 flex like entry level backcountry boots and he sent me like a pair of s labs that were like his um and that's the thing like uh, to be honest like i don't remember our conversations like pre-2020 quite as well like what we talked about i think a lot of it because i was just like starstruck when i would talk to him and i'll just be fumbling my words and like what the hell like i can't believe i'm talking to Cody Townsend again. Um, but that was the biggest thing for me was like, dude literally sent me like his boots when I didn't have a good pair of boots. Um, and, and so that for me was like the the real thing that I don't know, like you ever seen that movie uh, Like Mike where like Lil Bow Wow yeah. gets Michael Jordan's shoes? That's epic. That's yeah. Like, that's that's huge. Yeah, like short of lightning striking the shoes and them actually like giving me Cody Townsend powers, there was like a sense of confidence and belonging uh, that like I just didn't have before. Like when you're native 
on native land, like there's always something I think that you feel that other people don't, um, when you're, when you're outside. And, and I felt that a lot skiing. I used to ski, most of the skiing I did for a long time, I would just ski on my own. I wouldn't ski with anybody. And, um, I do it with a chip on my shoulder. Like mm. I look at people with nicer gear than me. Um, you know, who looked like they were better than me. And I would just try to get out there and just like pass them, flex on them while I was out there, like whatever. Um, and I think that having those boots was this thing that made me feel like this quiet sense of belonging that like I didn't have to prove something to the same level anymore. Where it was like, oh, you could think whatever you want of me, but like I'm in Cody Townsend's boots right now. Yeah. Like, exactly yeah so i think that from like the early part of our relationship was the first thing that really stood out to me and just made me feel i don't know like like i was supposed to be there for for one of the first times so yeah that's really special i'm surprised that cody had boots left over actually i think the year previous we had filmed together and he kept being like, yeah, I think I'm just like over hitting the really big cliffs. Like the crack was maybe the year before and he was moving into this, like kind of getting the idea of the 50 and he was like ready to slow it down a little bit. But then the second we got out into the mountains, he hit every 60 footer that like came into view. And I think he broke like two pairs of boots while we were out there. He would like break them, go back to the truck, get another pair, come back. He was just sending it. And I was like, I thought you said you were gonna tone it back a little bit. So I'm glad he had a left air over pair of boots for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they were they were gently used for sure. But uh, yeah, yeah uh, the, 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 I was in the same case. And so like, I think that that helped me feel that belonging too. Cause I was on these like hundred flexes the year before and I would just like break the buckle and have to take them to the shop like three times a season. And so I think a, a little bit of like that Cody Townsend essence, uh, you know, yeah, <laughs> carried over yeah. to my skiing through those. I love that. That's amazing. Shout out to Cody. That's awesome. Um, yeah. Can you tell me a little bit about Natives Outdoors, what it is? Yeah, for sure. So Natives Outdoors was started by by Len, uh, Len Nessifer back in like 2016, 2017. Um, and he was working at the Department of Energy um, as like kind of work between the Department of Energy and Native tribes um, and, and Len's Diné from down on the Navajo Nation. And um, during that time, like Trump came in and they were like, our goal is energy dominance. And he was like, whoa, like this is crazy. And so he quit um, and was like, what do I do with my life? And started backcountry skiing and climbing and all these things. And as he did that, he was like, okay, I love doing this, but I don't see other native folks out here. And so he started Natives Outdoors and it kind of just started, I think even as just like a, a hashtag in the Instagram account. And I saw them in maybe like 2018 in the summer and they made this post and they were looking for ambassadors and it said calling all native senders and defenders and something about that just like really stuck out to me i was uh skiing a lot at the time and the last job i'd had before i was just like living in my car in the woods building mountain bike trails um <laughs> was I'd, I'd worked on these anti-fracking campaigns. And so I had a little bit of experience like in that that environmental space. And I was like, what? Like, uh, 
there's someone who, you know, is looking for someone that's in exactly in the role I'm in. Like that's, that's kind of crazy. So it felt like a, like a dream come true when I first started, um, connecting with them. And, and really that was the pathway for me to like get other sponsors being the first stories that I was a part of. They did a story with Patagonia back in the day where we climbed this sacred mountain, uh, in, in protest of the snowmaking that was happening there that was using reclaimed sewage water and like got the blessing of a medicine man. And it was just like all this work that felt really so aligned, um, with all my values. And I didn't really realize that was possible within skiing. Um, and so, yeah, since then that, that kind of blueprint that came out of natives outdoors, which is, it's been a lot of things over the years right now, like natives outdoors is mostly focused on media and consulting we used to make like t-shirts and hats and stuff like that and then realize like maybe it wasn't the most in line with our actual priorities um but it, it for me it really created this blueprint of like okay how do we tell indigenous stories in the outdoors and was kind of creating this first collective of like putting together like indigenous you know cinematographers and photographers and, and writers uh in the same space with indigenous folks who were climbing and skiing and mountain biking and ultra running and all that stuff and so um yeah it it was our our little team and our little family so it, it's a pretty unique unique group and there's there's not really anything else like it in the outdoor space which is always just kind of crazy to me considering like we're all just out here playing you know, on some indigenous tribes, homeland, uh, and they're usually not there playing with us. And so it's just mm -hmm. kind of addressing, uh, that gap. Yeah. And in, in, uh, natives outdoors made spirit of the peaks with you, which was yeah, no. in my eyes, such a game changer of a movie. And at a, yeah. such a pivotal moment, it was beautifully done. If anyone who's listening hasn't seen it, you've got to go watch it. It's amazing. How was that diving into a big production like that? Uh, that was crazy for me because like I had the idea uh, for Spirit of the Peaks. I got like an Instagram message um, from this Ute kid and it kind of just made me realize like oh, I'm always skiing on Ute land. I was always doing land acknowledgements to the Ute tribe, but I didn't like have really any Ute friends at that time. And uh, like I said, it kind of speaks to that last problem that I was talking to where it's like, damn, like even for me as someone who's native, like I, I don't know how to find other native folks who should be living in these places that we ski. Like a lot of people don't know that the town of Aspen used to be called Ute City, you know, name for the Utes who were there. And so, um, yeah, it, it, it just was like this really humbling kind of process of being like, okay, you have this idea. Um, and this, this dream. And I just like threw it, uh, you know, onto the wall and saw what stuck and was really lucky to connect with the folks at Wonder Camp, uh, who was the production studio that we worked with. And they actually knew how to make a movie. But the, really the boldest thing that they did was <laughs> put it in my hands still and have me co-direct it with them and have me like co-lead in the process. Uh, and the film was funded by REI and Solomon. And so it, it felt like, oh, like we're in the midst of like, we got to make a real ski movie. And I've never made a movie at all. 
and I'm somehow co-directing and co-writing this film. Um, and it just like, there were days where it was all together too much in like every different category. Um, like, you know, Cody came to ski with us and like the four days that Cody comes to ski with us, we get like 36 inches in the San Juans in Colorado where we were filming. And it was just like, this is unreal. This is the coolest shit ever. And then the other side of that being like, there are times where we were like, cool, like we don't have enough ski footage and it's like the middle of April and like, what are we going to do? And like, I'm the one who has to answer for this. If like, we don't have that. Um, and the, these brands are paying a lot of money for like a ski film. And at that point in the time, like we'd skied, you know, a couple days with Cody and then we're like out skiing with folks, you know, on blues and greens, uh, at the ski area nearest to the Ute reservation. And so it was like, wow, how are we going to, going to fill these gaps and do all these things? But we trusted in the process and it, and it all came together. And yeah, the, the release of that film was, just, I could have never anticipated how well that would go and how well it would be received. We won best cinematography at, at five point and at um, the Wasatch film festival and, got into mountain film and all these crazy like 40 something film festivals all around the world. It was, it was wild. Um, and yeah, it just was like a really humbling process and hitting it out of the park. Uh, like the first time you, you make something like that, like also then like puts you in this position of you're like, dang, like, what are we going to do next? <laughs> like that was crazy. So yeah, it was definitely a journey and was kind of that second springboard that took me from like, oh, like I'm sponsored, like ski athlete kind of here, like on the periphery to being like, oh, like now I have like a career and I have something to show for this. And people will like trust me to like make projects or pitch them a film. Um, yeah, so it was a wild kind of miraculous turn of events when I when I look back at it because I really had no business doing it <laughs> but we did it and we did it very well so well clearly you had business doing it though because the outcome was so successful so there's something in you like your storytelling your capability to recognize all of that like yeah my hat's off to you because that is not an easy thing to do and it's so much additional responsibility when you're also trying to be the athlete like I commend you that's huge congrats on that thanks I appreciate that it yeah it certainly uh, certainly wasn't all me. I gotta gotta yeah. give a lot of credit to the team in that one. Yeah, absolutely. It always takes. There's so many moving parts, and it's winter. It's fickle. It's like actually quite difficult to create a ski film. And I'm always shocked how many ski films come out every year that are awesome. I'm like, wow, everyone scored. It looks really good. <laughs> yeah, I think that a lot, and I think a lot of times I'm like the film, and I think this is about my own film and other ones I've seen. We're like the film we really need to see also is like the film of how they made this film. Um, one of my favorite examples of that, like last year, uh, Emma Patterson, who's just an absolute crusher for us on the Solomon team. Um, she broke her leg in the first shoot of like the Solomon film that they were making, like, I don't know, like January. Um, and then it healed. And then she filmed again in like, march or april or whatever and i was like what and that that like because of how the film was laid out like that part of it didn't make the cut and you're like what like that's a whole movie in itself 
but totally. I think sometimes just that flow of like you got to pitch a movie like as what it's supposed to be uh, like before it actually starts happening creates a weird chain of events sometimes where I, where you're like okay I'm bet like really interesting shit happen while people are making their movies and then it doesn't like fit the plot that they pitched and so they're like well we just gotta leave this out but yeah skiers are incredible humans and it and it takes it takes so much to like do what's difficult for people to do in like a closed studio, but like, you know, at 10,000 feet in a blizzard. Yeah. Um, and I think the cinematographers have to get so much credit for that. Cause they're like basically as good of athletes as we are, but with like twice as heavy of packs, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And then they're investing in the camera gear and like the cost of that and the skill set. Like, yeah, I think so highly of the cinematographers that create these films. When you were pitching the idea, did you have a rough storyline and a concept for Spirit of the Peaks already mapped out? Yeah, I did. I had, I thought I was going to fit a lot in there. Uh, that's yeah. one thing that like making a movie teaches you is like, uh, you know, you relate to your temporal reality a little bit differently um, in that you're like, okay, like the amount of things you can say in 20 minutes is not the same as the amount of things you can show someone in a film in 20 minutes. But that's for better and for worse, if that makes sense. Whereas like, oh, you might be able to cover less ground intellectually and cover like double the ground emotionally and viscerally and and so i think like learning that that balance and that relationship with filmmaking is like a pretty special thing and then the attachment you have you know to like oh the story's gonna go this way um and then like if you're making a documentary that actually has to happen um and so like whether it's gonna actually happen that way or not like uh i don't know you can have the conversation all set up with the perfect person to talk about the perfect thing um and it just goes slightly different and it's not bad. It's not necessarily good, but like you didn't get what exactly you thought you were going to get. And so I think like learning to deal with the improvisation that comes with that. Um, I don't know. It's like a skill for life uh, at the same time that kind of comes through in the process of filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like just in the winter time too, like that kind of creates this very spontaneous energy of pivoting and, and, being able to, because oftentimes it's really hard for people to conceptualize changing, changing their path or whatever that is. So having that spontaneous ability is really incredible. But I feel like after so many years of being in the ski industry, like that spontaneity is a skill set. But now I like crave routine a little bit more. I'm trying to find that balance for myself right now as an athlete, actually, which has been interesting. Yeah, I think I think that that routine becomes like the the gold nugget, if you will, <laughs> like when like for so many other people, uh, the the like powder day or like, you know, even just like, I, you know, I get to live up in Winter Park, Colorado. It's incredible here. And so many people like, you know, much like where you live, like it might be the biggest deal of their whole decade for them to get to come there for, for a week and appreciate it. Uh, you know, and sometimes I'm like, man, I just like want to go home to the city and just like sit on the couch with my mom and do, you know, like the simple things of life um, become so like hard to attain when you're always like 
chasing the magic thing. And I think like, I don't know, there's an interesting juxtaposition there, like a, like an alchemy of like, wait, which of these is actually like the gold, you know, which of these is actually the thing I'm really, I'm really after in life. Yeah. Yeah. Cause when you chase the skiing and you chase that next high, it's so fleeting. It's not necessarily permanent. Like, I think for me, I've been trying to reframe my mindset on any given winter of like, wait, really notice those in-between moments where you feel this pure joy. And then like also reflecting back on my winters, I'm like, what are the things that stood out to me the most? Like, sure, there's the days when you nail the line and it feels really good, but it's like the moments leading up to that line, whether it's the trust in yourself mentally, your ability to break down the snowpack, like that's made that day more special. But for me, it's so often, it's like skiing with my mom or like, Last year I skipped so many powder days that were bluebird and sunny and stable to go play pickleball with my dad inside. And I would do it all over again. Like those are the moments that are lasting that I think as a culture, it would be probably better for our mental health if we could all kind of celebrate those kind of smaller accomplishments that aren't necessarily small because they are lasting. Yeah, totally. I I think about that a lot. And like, I like to obsess about like brain chemistry and like what goes on like in the body um and when you live right like at altitude uh it's easier to get dopamine and it's harder to get serotonin and to like you know be real abbreviated with it like dopamine is much more your sense of accomplishment and serotonin is much more your sense of community and so i think like uh the way the brain is wired up here is also like a little bit uh in reflection of how I think like the lifestyle tends to play out. Whereas like any day I want, I could go right out the door and I could go climb any of these peaks that I can see from my window. And like, that would feel amazing, right? Uh, but the harder thing to find, I think like, especially for for an indigenous person in the mountains or in a ski town is like, how, how do I find that sense of belonging and community? Um, you know, and I think there's like a competitiveness sometimes that comes from like the world of Instagram and just like the, the I don't know, like machismo and like bro bra, like masculinity that, that comes with, with skiing and with all sports really. But um, yeah, I think sometimes we're just so pushed to be like, no, like I got to get out there today. Like the shots will be sick. This is like, I got to do this. Um that it's really easy to skip on the fact that you're like, okay, like, yeah, like you've gotten after it like 20 days in a row. Like when's the last time you, you saw your grandma, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and that was a crazy one for me. Like I got in an avalanche at the end of last season. And that was the first thing that I did afterwards, um, was my mom flew me down, uh, to go see my grandma. And I was like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, you you especially as a pro skier it's so easy in the middle of winter to be like all right hold on guys like i'll do the family stuff in the summer but it's about to snow over here we're about to film over there we got to be there we got to do this da, 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 that you're like wait man it's been like a year since i saw my grandma um and i think like you know hopefully uh in, in me mentioning this and then us just collectively like growing our awareness you know it's like okay hopefully you don't got to get it caught in an avalanche to see your grandma yeah (laughs) yeah that's kind of like if you could that's like a good case study on like 
where where are our priorities off a little bit collectively and like i don't know just examining the ways that we're all kind of pushed uh yeah. to, to have our priorities be different yeah i think about i've been thinking about that a lot lately like i don't necessarily like having regrets and i feel like i have I don't know, there's things that maybe I wish that I had done differently. Like I, this is my 21st year as a professional skier and with my dad's health issues, I think about like, what would I have done differently? For 20 years, I've been on the road. I've been like pursuing my career and yes, it's my passion and it's such a privilege to be able to do that, but I've been really driven by that. And like, I wish that 10 years ago, I would have spent a little bit more time at home skiing with my family because I don't think that I'll ever get that back. Like I can go skiing with my dad right now. I don't know if we're gonna be skiing this year, but I can go skiing with him, but it's not the same. Like I'm yeah. on the edge of my seat and I'm chasing him and making, he doesn't have the power to like stop on an edge. So when he gets out of control, it's a little out of control. And <laughs> yeah, but that's the one thing that I like looking back, I'm like, man, like we're so focused on us and pursuing our career and bettering ourselves, but yeah, realigning those priorities to be a bit more harmonious, I think is is very challenging. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it's so beneficial to our mental health and yeah, everything. Couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's that's really like the time that we find ourselves in in skiing is like and not just for those of us who are who are professional skiers, but I think is like whether it's family or community or climate or, or whatever it might be is that time of kind of like balancing and like recalibrating like okay like what are the priorities within the sport and how do we you know how do we like adjust the compass even if it's just a few degrees or maybe for some of us or some communities or whatever it might be maybe it's you know 180 degrees but uh, I think that's that's really the time is just like I don't know like how many times are you gonna you know like push the envelope really with what you're doing in the sport like yeah that happens from from time to time but i think like skiing is a sport that should have a different relationship to like the spiritual sustainability of it if you will because like man it's not football like we don't like look how long your career has been like <laughs> you would and, and you kind of are in your own way but like you'd be tom brady with a career that long in the nfl right where like people start talking about like whoa like you know michelle's been doing this forever but it's it's more normalized in skiing to have a long career and, and it's also more normalized for like someone to move across the world to participate in the sport even if they're not doing it at a professional level you know like if someone moves up to the town where I live from across the world, like that's so normal and so understandable. If I moved to Boston because I was a Tom Brady fan back in the day and then moved to Tampa with him when he moved, like people would be like, dude, you're nuts. But we don't do that to each other in skiing. And so I think like learning that like, okay, the way we feel about this must mean that like a different set of priorities and, and values around it like needs to come with it and often does come with it but we don't like celebrate that in in the same way i feel like you're tapping into this really large conceptual um shift in perspective almost amongst like the entire ski industry and how our relationship to the mountains is and i've like lately i've heard a lot of that conversation where like surfers like they 
speak about helping the ocean and protecting the environment and it's so important to them and it's so ingrained in that culture but in skiing sure we have protect our winners but we also use mechanized means of accessing terrain we're traveling a ton surfers are also traveling a ton and i think that commercial airline flights are probably the worst for the environment out of the things that we do but yeah you've spoken a lot about this recently publicly and i've really enjoyed absorbing your thoughts and they've made me think about just how can we collectively shift to be more vocal and more in touch spiritually with our environment around us as skiers? We depend on nature. It's such a huge aspect. We need snow to pursue this. So yeah, I don't know if you can embellish on that a little bit. I think it's a beautiful thought. Yeah, I think for me, like that that's really one of the reasons why I feel so grateful and I don't know if like, what the right word for it is exactly. But I, I feel really grateful, even though a lot of difficulty comes with it, uh, for, for being Lakota, for having like a native culture to understand like how relationship to the land and relationship to one another like should look in a different way. Um, because I think sometimes like we don't have like definitive kind of cultural reference points the same way in skiing or in you know really like in, in eurocentric culture like as a whole um there's not the same like reference points of like oh like this is how this should be done uh there's much more this sense of like um the possibilities are the possibilities are endless and open and whatever and like that's what freedom should mean to you um but I think also there's like a freedom that comes in knowing like, actually, this is exactly how things should be done. Um, and so through through my culture, you know, I, I've gotten a lot more of that specifically when it comes to the land itself. Um, and, and really to like extending that sense of community beyond just like your human community. Um, and, and I think that's a huge thing that's like, it's a gap in skiing, but also I think like a lot of people are there, um, but we don't have like the same cultural affirmation for it, if that makes sense. And, and so really what I'm talking about mm -hmm. is like seeing uh, your relatives, you know, the, the things in nature that are not human, um, but seeing their lives with that same level of value and sovereignty and, and possibly even like uh, an intelligence, even if that intelligence is, is different, you know, than your own. And for me, and in my experience, like mountains have personalities, like trees have personalities. Uh, they have intelligences, they have ways that they'll try to communicate with you. And I think skiers, like, uh, especially those of us who are going into the back country a lot, having to assess snow situations, you know, maybe on a multiple day, expedition whatever it might be like you start thinking in this different sort of way um and in native american traditions like that's how we thought all the time right like we were on an expedition that like never ended um and so when you think about that bond that you feel like oh yeah i did five days out in the such and such range and like i feel so connected to that place now and you know then you hear oh you know someone wants to put a mine in that same range or whatever it might be like you're quick to understand like the value of of fighting for it um but that really exists 
everywhere you go. Like every place is a place that provides incredible experiences and, you know, like the system of relations of relatives of other beings that are out there is actually like what makes the ecosystem that keeps you alive happen. Um, and, and sometimes I think like in skiing, like we're a little checked out from that and it would, not only would it be more sustainable if we weren't, but like, it's more fun. And I'm really grateful for that as a native person, like to just have some of these simple understandings, like, uh, it became much quicker to me through my native culture than through skiing that like the water I ski on is the water that I drink. Right. And like, that's like a potent, crazy thing to be like connected to. Like, and I know there's been a lot of different ski movies with like really epic overblown uh voiceover where the whole theme in the movie is like kind of about the hydrological cycle um but i think sometimes like we we make that up to be like a lot more artsy and a lot less practical uh and i think in native cultures like we have a really like firm meeting of like art and ecological practice that makes sense and moving from that that place of understanding and getting to like prioritize that it just gives you a different sense of appreciation i think as a skier to be like dang like okay skiing's cool and it's just a sport and it's this and that or maybe it's the thing that makes the economy in my town work like whatever it is but also like i'm out here experiencing like this incredible level of joy and gratitude with this snow this like frozen, beautiful crystals of water that are going to melt. And then eventually are going to be the things that like I put into a glass, pour down my throat. And then they like literally like animate my cells and are essential to the process of like cellular respiration. And like, I can't exist without doing that. And on the flip side, like I have to do my cellular respiration and exhale so that the trees who are helping me breathe can do photosynthesis instead. And like you start just geeking out on that exchange that we're a part of and how closely we get to touch it as skiers. And you're like, okay, this is this truly is like something really profound. And I think, uh, you know, coming from a native culture, like it's much easier to acknowledge that right away. Uh, I think like almost all skiers feel that whether they're aware of it or not. But most people don't have like a cultural context or the vocabulary um, to understand that, right? Because like you grow up speaking English and like water is just water, right? Like water, okay? It's the thing that comes out of the tap, right? That's probably how you think of it before you think, oh, it's the thing that that falls from the sky or freezes on the side of a mountain. But in Lakota, the word for water, mani, literally means like, this is the thing that all things share in order to give us life. Mm -hmm. Like that's our definition of what water is, right? Because we can't use water in our definition of creating water. We didn't use, you know, oh, it's two hydrogens and an oxygen. Like none of that was our understanding. Our understanding of water is like, hey, like this is the thing everybody needs to touch. Everybody needs to take in in some form in order for life to go on whether you're a tree a person a deer a bird a mountain a bug like whatever you are you need this thing inside you in order to exist and like our sport is literally like just going and being like as joyful and as grateful as we can amongst that thing while it's in this like 
purgatory of a frozen state just like splattered onto the side of a mountain like in this in this stasis before it melts and like gives life to the whole world in the spring and the summer and like as skiers we're in this unique role of the ones who like go out and celebrate and connect with that thing and so yeah i don't know i it just gives you this this really interesting perspective and it, and it makes me grateful to feel that as a skier and, and it makes me grateful to be kind of in the role that i am of like i don't know a bit of a translator if you will to be like hey wait other skiers like from my culture let me tell you like this smile that you have on your face this is this is a deeper understanding of where that comes from like it doesn't just feel good mysteriously like it feels good for a reason <laughs> go off that was so spectacular to listen to that breakdown thank you wow this is like the feeling that I get sometimes when I talk to you. I'm like, oh my gosh, it's mind bending. It's like, it's so amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I think like you nailed it, obviously, but you're so right where you say that we as skiers can go out there and everyone can feel this connection to the nature and to what we're doing. And But it's almost hard to place as a white person that doesn't have that cultural background or that history or even your relationship to words and and uh, you're kind of, from what I'm hearing and from what I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the rock could be an ancestor or a relative. You, you uh, personify, you like humanize these elements in nature, which then brings this far deeper connection because these are things and people that you are so connected with and, and they're things and people that you love and... I don't know. I, I really appreciate that perspective. And I feel like we can learn so much from that. Yeah, absolutely. And like, we do it because it feels good. But also we do it because it's like scientifically true. So it's like, yeah, like you could look at it as like, okay, like, I don't think you actually descended from a rock in order to be for that rock to be your ancestor. But if the stream ran over that rock for 1000s of years, you saw that it smoothed the rock that's how long the water has been running over it. Well, then it carried minerals with it, right? And you drank those minerals and those minerals are in your bones and in your skin and in your hair, right? And that was also true if you're in the same place of your ancestors who lived there before you. And so if your ancestors were made from the mineral of that rock and you're made from the mineral of that rock, then like that rock is also your ancestor in that way. And like, if they're your ancestor because your DNA is, their DNA is in you, then aren't you like also the the descendant of something if like particles of their being become the particles that are your being like if that's not family like i'm not really sure what is mm. yeah that's so beautiful have you read by chance braiding sweetgrass oh like i'm always reading it <laughs> <That makes sense. laughs> yeah it's an amazing book to plug back in yeah, there's times I just got to go back and pick that up because I'm like, oh, I need to read the chapter about strawberries today. Like, that's just where my, <laughs> yes. where my heart is at. And I love like anecdotes and I love little, little short stories as like a form of, I don't know, self-care sometimes, like an affirmation. And so, yeah, that's Braiding Sweetgrass by, by Robin Wall Kimmerer, like lives in my life, like, like a friend as well. 
Interrupting this episode to shout out Sierra Nevada Brewery, independent since day one. I've sung their accolades many times over here on Care Less Do More, and I'll continue to do so as this is a company that I've grown to love for their innovative and passion-driven focus on bringing you high-quality beer that's delightful to drink. Creative expression is at the core of it all, whether it's born from modern innovation or reverence for brewing history. Aside from their array of delightful beers and other beverages to drink, I'm a huge fan as they're committed to high quality, low impact brewing by investing in the largest solar array in craft beer, diverting 99.8% of their solid waste from the landfill and building the first lead platinum production brewery in the United States. So sip on that. And thank you, Sierra Nevada Brewery, for supporting this show and so many other wonderful things in the outdoors. Mm-hmm. It's, I've been saying a lot. It's, it's, I think it's my favorite book. And I think I learned so much from it. But one of the aspects that I absolutely loved is how they spoke about their cultural practices becoming scientifically proven down the mm-hmm. line. And, and I just, that's like a testament to over time and so much time y'all have like learned to understand some things that we just haven't. Um, and I think that's a beautiful aspect of the relationship to the mountains and to nature and everything. And yeah, we're all so lucky to have you a part of the industry and using your voice in the way that you do. But I would imagine also that that comes with, um, a lot of weight on your shoulders. How does that feel for you? You know, it's funny. Uh, I, this has been a thing like I focused on a lot this off season. I think like a large part of it is like ending the season with an avalanche, um, and just kind of being in that place of questioning, like, okay, like what are my priorities? Right. Um, you know what I mean? And there's like a, there's a doubt for me that comes from like an event, like a, like an avalanche, because as someone who sees the mountains as like something with a personality and a soul and a, a, a spirit within them, you're like, dang, like why me that day? I thought we like knew how to communicate. So it's been a, it's been an interesting thing to kind of reorient myself as someone who like puts themselves in that position of, of trying to do that for our collective. Um, but the thing that I, that I really come back to at the end of the day is like, I think it's a process of life, you know, that like your goalposts are always gonna be in perspective to the previous ones, if that makes sense, or like the peach, the peaks that you reach the top of kind of exist in that same way, where it's like, okay, like, you know, I, I'm from Denver, Boulder area, like, right from there, you can see a peak. And you get to the top of, you know, let, let's say it's a uh, Long's Peak, real prominent on the front range of Colorado. And from there, it's like, wow, that's the biggest mountain. That's the only thing I can see. And you get to the top of that and you see that on the other side of it is a sea of other mountains and that out there, there's other mountains that are larger, right? And, and that's kind of how the relationship to my role has been, where it's like, you always think like the next peak is like, yeah, like once I get up there, I can finally be done. You know, like I, I remember thinking that uh, in the in the last article of Powder Magazine before they went out of print, which also I think they're coming back into print starting like very soon. Just ordered it's it exciting. yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great to see. But in the previously before they'd stopped, uh, the last like powder profile that they wrote was on me. 
And I was like, wow, like, that's it. Like, I don't need to do anything beyond that. Like, I'm sure that'll be the thing. And then I can finally rest. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you do that and it opens the lane for you to make a movie, you know, and you're like, oh, and then you do the movie and you're like, oh, well, this gives me this opportunity to, you know, I started scholarship programs for Native American folks all across the country to be able to get out skiing because the film raised that awareness. And you're like, oh, we started the scholarship. Like, finally, we can rest. Um, and eventually you see like, okay, wait, like life is a journey that like, you, you don't, you don't rest until it's over necessarily. Like, um, and that's not to say like, uh, you know, you shouldn't find those moments to enjoy some lunch on the summit or, you know, enjoy laying in the shade in the valley, like certainly take those small moments of rest, but it's not over. And from wherever you're at, like you're only going to have gained a new perspective of, of what needs to be done next. Um, so for me, that's been really the challenge of, of this off season is being like, okay, now that I'm in a spot and have such a perspective uh, that I can see so many more things that, that need to be done, um, you know, what do I really want to do? And I think the same thing is kind of true of like power and influence, which is like, uh, as soon as you like, when you have no power, or no influence, you're like, man, if I just had some, I could change the world, right? And then you get some and you're like, ooh, like some isn't really that much. Like if I could get this much um, and, and then maybe you've got like a firm grasp on your like, ooh, this is about as much power or influence as I'm comfortable with. And then you see people who are affecting the world to like a larger degree than you. And you're like, whoa, like how did they get that much? And like with as hard as I work to get to where I'm at, the level of influence or, you know, say that I have, like, how did these people get in these other positions? Um, and, you know, the thing you realize is like, okay, some people are just born with their hands a lot fuller than the, the rest of us might might ever be for, for better or for worse, you know? Um, but how do you learn to then be like, okay, like, how do I have a relationship then with the amount, um, you know, of capability that, that I'm comfortable having? And, and how do I find contentment you know, in doing the most I can with that. And, and kind of like we were saying earlier, like for me, it really comes back to like uh, still having that ability to have routine, have peace, have that time with, with my family or whatever it might be um, is really the trick of it, you know? Cause like, I don't think any of us wants to set ourselves up to be on a path where we just like endlessly work. Uh, towards a goal that we're not certain is is attainable or just endlessly work to you know like create profit for some company that we'll we'll never see the benefits of or, or whatever it might be um yeah so i think that's really the the trick of it is just like finding that that groove um where you're like okay this is this is enough for me um this is what i can do and it's what i'm going to do and sure there's people who would ask you to do more but like usually the people who are doing that can't even understand, you know, what it's taking to get to, to have the level of capacity that, that, that you do. Um, and, and I think we're all kind of on those like capacity building journeys, you know, like if we're in, in so many different facets of our life. So for me, it's just really been finding that contentment of like, okay, like this year I get to help 30 folks go ski, uh, get an icon pass with our scholarship program. Like that's enough. Like that feels really good to me. Like I remember how it felt in a season where I couldn't afford 
my ski pass. And if someone had just had an opportunity like I'm able to provide right now uh, that they could have shared with me, like I think about how it would have felt, you know, to get that help at that time. And it's like, okay, if I can receive just a little of the feeling of, of how this feels for those other folks, like that's enough. It, it's not saving the world. It's not solving climate change. It's not giving all the land back to all the Native American tribes that, that probably rightfully deserve it. But, but it's something and it's what I can do and it's something probably only I can do. And so that, that part of it starts to, you know, you, you have to lean on that more than being like, well, damn, like I didn't save the whole world from climate change yet by skiing a sick line and then slapping a power <laughs> on something. And like, uh, however you envisioned it to be once upon a time, you're like, mm, it's more complicated than that, but I'm doing something and that, that counts. Yeah, you're doing something and it's actually quite big. I read that you hope to inspire others to find that connection with nature and like that is so in line with that ethos and yeah, that's awesome. Is it still open? Can people still apply to get the scholarship? Yeah, it's open until the 21st, 22nd. I would say the 20. I'm the one who's in charge of closing it, so. (laughs) 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 Keep picking up. Um, but yeah, we'll be announcing who the who the winners are like the first week of Native American Heritage Month, which is November. So really yeah. excited about that and just so excited to see it grow. We started uh, three years ago with 10 scholarships, 10 icon passes, um, and now we're giving away 30. So it's pretty sweet. That's amazing. And, uh, yeah, Palisades, where, where you're at, is uh, one of our main sponsors of it too. They add an extra an extra five passes that we kind of devote to, to native folks there in the area. They do a lot for the, for the Washoe tribe. Um, but you know, there's different native folks who are displaced from their homelands all over the place and, you know, still deserve that, that connection to, to be out there skiing on, on the land. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, um, so important. Thank you for that, for doing that work. It's interesting. Like, I've spent a lot of time up in Canada and in recent times have been just thinking to myself of, you know, you drive the Sea to Sky Highway and there are the road names are in the indigenous cultures language and the town names and whatnot. And there's a lot less, it seems, it appears that there's a lot less erasure. Like you can see it, you know that the culture is there, you know that it's alive and um, it's a part of that community. Whereas here in Tahoe, we obviously just had the name change from the old name to Palisades. And for myself, having been born and raised here, you don't see a ton of the native culture around. It's not that present. Like there's been a lot of erasure and, and it took me like, I don't know. It took a lot of kind of educational and like really looking for it though. Like it wasn't presented and, and a lot of that education came from Palisades and, and my hats off to them for bringing that forth. I think they did a really good job of giving the community resources to learn and educate themselves. And there was a lot of people that did that. And there was a lot of people that maybe didn't dive into that education. I think that is a huge problem. It takes effort, right? It takes this desire to want to learn and to grow and I think that it's one of the most important parts of being human is to have these different perspectives and to, and to change your perspective as a result. But I guess all of this is to say that, like, I, yeah, I wish that it was more present here. 
And I'm super thankful for Palisades' work in doing that. And we do have a really strong indigenous community in the Washoe tribe. And I think there's a lot of, not more recent, but now it's been brought to my attention that there is programs to get the native youth out and involved in the mountains and, you know, introducing them to mountain biking or different, I don't know, different activities out there. And it is so important. I like, yeah, it, I just thank you for doing that. It's, it's hugely incredible work and yeah, I don't know. That is something that I did get to go on a day with the Washoe tribe cultural and expedition program and just spending that time with these kids and kind of understanding a bit of their history and not ever being able to fully feel what they've been through, but to see them light up when they're like on the bike for the first time and hitting jumps and how enthusiastic they are. And, And then to think about and recognize and pay homage to the fact that like they haven't felt comfortable coming up and and partaking in community events or in the outdoors in our area. And much of that has to do with the name that was present in our valley. And and then have you at all heard about the siren? I've heard a little bit about it. Uh, the, yeah. the times I've heard about it has been people referencing like you uh, within it. So I'd love to just like hear a little bit more from from you and from your experience on that. Yeah, well, it was brought to my attention on the skin track, which I love the skin track for starting these types of conversation. And I love diving in with people and just having the conversations. But my friend Brendan kind of mentioned that Minden was the last town in the West that still had a siren. And for the listeners that don't know what the siren is, the siren was essentially an actual siren that would alarm at, I believe it was from 5 p.m. or 6 p.m., depending on the time of its lifespan and it meant that anyone of colored skin had to leave the town and couldn't be seen and atrocities would occur if they were seen in public and so this was like a piece of a town that is literally just on the outskirts of Tahoe, Minden, it's like less than an hour from my house and it was still happening, the siren was still alarming and I think that people kind of redefined what the siren meant in modern times and Mm -hmm. said, well, it doesn't mean that it's actually honoring the first responders or it's honoring the firefighters, but historically that's what it has meant. So there's a lot of historical trauma there and to the indigenous folk that still live there or people of color, like it was a huge issue. It was a reminder every single day about something that had happened to their people. And so just recently within the last couple of months, they voted a bill, I believe it was into legislation that would no longer have the siren sounding. And, and just, I guess for me at first, I was surprised when I heard that that was still occurring. And then when I thought about it with a little bit more understanding, I wasn't that surprised. I was like, of course, there's something so blatantly obvious that is so racist that's occurring locally here. And I don't think a lot of the community members here in Tahoe knew that that was happening. But again, it goes back to that education piece of like really understanding the history of it and and the fact that it is still happening. Um, but yeah, so no longer the siren's not occurring anymore. It's not going off. Um, and and what happened, and this kind of parlays into an old conversation that we had, was one of the leads from the Native community. He was like, they were, they've been battling this for a really long time and trying to get the siren to stop. And eventually he was just, he struck up a conversation with like a, 
white blue collar worker in the parking lot at maybe a Home Depot or something. And, and the white guy actually was like, hey, you're so-and-so and you're taking the lead on trying to get the siren to get shut down. And he said, yeah, I am. And the white guy said, well, I think like to have more an, an effect, like you should come speak to our community and get us involved as well. And so it really kind of formed this larger community and he was able to broaden his group of people that wanted the siren to get turned off. And um, I bring that aspect of the story up because at one point we were talking about, I was really trying to make a film about the name change at Palisades. And it was a really intimidating space for me to kind of walk in and try to use my voice because I didn't know if I was welcome there to use my voice. And, and you said to me that it's stronger when we come together and we speak about this stuff together. And that has forever kind of, I guess it's made it, much like Cody giving you those boots, it like made it, uh, the door opened for me in my own mind of what I can do and what I can involve myself in. And I felt more confident knowing that like, I can at least try and put myself out there. And of course I might mess up, but it's, that's a part of growth and you've got to do that. Um, so yeah, thanks for having that conversation with me back then. Cause I've feel like it's, uh, yeah, it's given me the confidence to kind of move through these spaces and learn and grow and understand a lot more. Yeah, for sure. Well, I appreciate you having been one of the folks who put in the work and then spoke up about what you learned because, I don't know, for me, like, that was a thing for a lot of years. Like, I could just, and I still haven't, and, you know, uh, we should probably work on this, but I've, I've still never skied in Tahoe at all. Um, but for a lot of years, I just wouldn't because, uh, that was, you know, what the, what the, what the ski area was on the pass that I had, uh, what was to go to what's now Palisades was the S word. Um, and, and for us, like as native folks, like that, that word carried a lot of, a lot of weight, you know, um, it, it essentially signified that like, if calling a woman that, essentially signified like that she was it was okay to kidnap her murder her or rape her that her life you know like didn't have value um and it was the name of a ski area is the name of a lot of mountains of a lot of creeks uh rivers hiking trails things all across the country and and since deb howland uh came in as the secretary of interior they've actually removed all those i don't think it's it may not even be legal to make that a place name uh, anymore. I mean, I'm sure you couldn't make it, but like, uh, again, but uh, like to even keep it up anywhere in the United States. But Palisades was ahead of the curve, actually, and did that like a year or so before. And there was so many people who would be like, oh, like, it's all the white liberal blah, 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 who want this, like, this honors Native Americans. And I think one of the hardest things for Native people um, is that like, you know, like we experienced a, a genocide uh, that was 95 to 99% of our population. Um, and so like, even if we all raise our voice, we, there are so few of us uh, compared to the other demographics within the United States that like, it doesn't really matter. Like we are not, uh, people don't, you know, politicians don't think of us when they're thinking of who their voters are. Uh, companies don't think of us when they're thinking of who their customers might be. All these different things. We're just not really considered because uh, Native American people make up like about three and a half percent or less 
uh, of the population in the United States. And so we, we simply like don't matter uh, in, in the, the sheer numbers game of things, which is crazy. But also like there's a lot of ways that you just get used to that. Um, and so for me, that was something I was resigned, like, oh, that'll probably never change. Probably nobody cares. Like, uh, and so to see the skiers who are like the legendary skiers that come out of that place, yourself included, uh, take our side in that and be like, no, like this, this really does matter. And it shouldn't be this way. Um, I, I think that that's a, I think that that's a huge a huge step, you know, and it, it really does matter at the end of the day. Uh, you know, even if they don't shoot people still after the siren goes off in one of those towns, like, uh, there's something that like, I've really come to experience in my life, which is that like, in the West in particular, in the outdoors in particular, like, uh, the comfort of white people, uh, and their emotional comfort is often prioritized far before uh, the comfort and the physical safety of Native American people. Um, and I think like, you know, when you look at the history of like how we got here, like it's, it's pretty obvious as to why, um, but there's still so many ways that it's like ingrained um, in, in the way that we operate, where people will hold on to something that's a tradition and you're like, you don't even know what that tradition is. You're not even connected to it anymore. Like, it doesn't celebrate you in any way, but you just like it because it makes you comfortable and you're used to it. But this actually represents like our death. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's a really powerful thing to have those voices come together. And I think it's one of the coolest things that we've seen in the last decade is like this really strong embracing of like, okay, like the outdoor industry and indigenous communities are really natural allies, right? It's hard to climb, bike, ski, run, whatever, in places that have been, you know, logged completely or turned into a strip mine or whatever it is. So like some of those base priorities we can share. And then like it turns into also having cool conversations like we just got to have about like snow and water and stuff where it's like, wait, also like we're sharing in some really cool collective experiences um, that like, yeah, maybe like native folks, like we have the language for them or some of the first understandings for them, but they're very innately human things to, to be a part of. So mm -hmm. uh, I think it's, I think it's special that we've kind of found a lot more common ground, I guess I would say. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think about, um, the psychology behind learning something and in relationship for example, to avalanche awareness. It's really hard to absorb and understand what you're um, dealing with out there without having had avalanches affect you in your life. Like through teaching with Safe As, there's some students that are so attentive and they clearly wanna learn and they're taking it very seriously. And then there's other students that it's kind of not, they're not totally uh, invested in the knowledge and you can tell by the way that they're receiving the information. And I'm always like, man, how do you, like, what's the psychology behind being able to learn something that doesn't necessarily affect you directly? And when we talk about the name change, I think of that. And I think that there's just, maybe it's emotional intelligence or the ability to have empathy and understand what someone else might be going through that when you really think about it and you can hold that space or that empathy for others, you it affects you and, and you have to 
like it changes your the way you think you shift your perspective to be more encompassing of that other perspective the person who is the most affected and I think that that yeah I, I think more and more as I'm observing we're I think humanity is lacking that empathy yeah right now right and I don't know I I, I hope that we can overcome that I, I feel that, that. I think that there's something like in the word empathy and like what it gets associated with that like causes it to be overlooked a little bit. And I think one of the biggest things is like, I think people look at empathy as more of a sign of being like emotional as opposed to looking at empathy as a sign of being intelligent. Um, And I think that's one of the kind of like shifts that's underway. Like I've noticed that just like with, all the crazy goings-ons of current events, um, especially ones like if you don't personally understand them, uh, where it's like, "Mm, I'm not posting anything. I'm not taking a side yet. Like, I want to learn. I want to read as many things from as many perspectives within this as I can. Um, And it's like, yo, like, that's empathy. Like, empathy and intelligence are actually, like, much more deeply connected uh, then I think they've been credited for. And I think that's like a lot of why we find ourselves in like a, a lot of the, the global tensions or even like the smaller community tensions that, that we're a part of is where it's like, okay, like, yeah, you know, like it's really simple, easier to talk about one would be like Airbnbs, right? Like people are like, oh, like, but it's so important for me to have, I need to have this second income property. That's important. That's a part of my like, you know, and, and that would be more celebrated, I think, by our current standards as like, oh, it's so smart of them. They have this rental investment property, blah, blah, blah. But like from an empathy level of intelligence, you're like, mm, you can only fit so many houses in these mountains. And so everyone you turn into one of those is somebody's home that you're taking away or making more expensive or whatever it is. And so, yeah, I, I just think like learning to, you know, adjust our our empathy uh, as a form of intelligence is huge. And I think snow science is kind of the place to me where it's like, oh yeah, like it's so certainly that way where it's like, okay, because I have this value for how the other people in my party might feel, like we see that shooting crack, even if I'm like, well, this is like that weird wind slab on this one roll. Snow's always a little funky here. I tour here all the time, but I'm out with a party of folks and I'm showing them my neck of the woods and we walk across there and that, you know, wind slab spiders as we walk across it and they're like what the hell like i think it's so much easier in that space to then be like okay like we can ski something else we can turn around however you're feeling like it's really ingrained with the sort of citizen science that comes with snow science um that that link between like empathy and and, and intelligence and, and maybe like empathy being really closely connected to you knowing that you don't know, you know, and knowing, knowing what you don't know is maybe like the most crucial part of intelligence, uh, as opposed to like having such good tabs on everything you do know and how smart you are. So uh, I really feel where that's, where that's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. I love that you just touched on that. Like the understanding, I think like it takes true intelligence to, understand and accept that you know nothing and you got to start from square one and relearn whatever it may be 
Um, you've been talking about your avalanche quite a bit here, but huh. I would love to hear the story. You've uh, thankfully, I really appreciate it as a fellow lifelong learner of the mountains when people share openly. Um, and yeah, I think it's so important for listeners to not have any judgment when we talk about this stuff, but just hold that space with a lot of empathy. So yeah, I'd love to hear your story. And it sounds like it really affected you. Yeah, it was a big thing. And uh, the one thing I will say too, for, for folks who are listening is like, I think in December, uh, I forget what time it's supposed to be scheduled for, but um, I've got an episode uh, of a series that I'm working on that'll be coming out in December. And we we have footage of like the whole the whole incident for, for better and for worse. It'll definitely come with a with a bit of a trigger warning. Um and you know, we we really leaned into this process of like taking the story of the avalanche back. Um, because I guess in some ways for me, like the way that it sort of felt like it ended uh was with us like being on Good Morning America, um, and you know, in on official networks and all these things and just like the sensationalism uh of the story and and you know watching like something really traumatic that you're a part of like get turned into click clickbait uh is kind of a crazy thing and so um yeah i guess i'd just like to acknowledge that first because like you were saying like i don't think until you understand the stakes of being in an avalanche like it's it's hard to take it seriously but i think there's like a commonality and an empathy and something that's shared in the snow sports community um for better or for worse that that comes from from avalanches so um but yeah for for my story in particular uh it happened this spring in the san juans uh it was april 28th which uh is usually like kind of one of our solid windows of, of the year where you can uh expect a lot less avalanche activity in those mountains which are like probably the most avalanche prone mountains anywhere um that i'm familiar with uh, you know, just really steep mountains right above uh, the desert. And so the snow that comes in is really dry and it's Colorado. So those mountains are getting 300 days of sunshine and they're all like 13,000 feet tall. And so the sun is really powerful and direct and, you know, it's almost New Mexico. It's so far south. So anyways, with all that in mind, we're, we're skiing on uh, what would be like our fourth or fifth day, I think, of shooting. Um, and we were going to wrap up the shoot with like sort of a chiller line um, than the days we'd had before. And the night before we go into like the local shop there in town, it's like the guide shop uh, slash uh, backcountry shop. And we're picking up some skis we'd had tuned or something like that. And our homie Ryan is the guy who'd been working on my skis all season. And I'd never skied with him, but he skis up at Silverton mountain. He's a total crusher. Um, and so we are like, Oh yeah, we're going out tomorrow and we want to do this King Solomon, uh, which is this huge face, um, probably like 3000 feet of relief or so. Um, big old mountain. And he was like, Oh, I've been eyeing that all year. I've got some beta. I went and took these photos the other week. Like we should totally do that. Uh, and so we get up in the morning start our little dawn patrol with some, breakfast burritos from the coffee bear and we're doing our thing and we get on top and it is just like the most glorious day um we were supposed to get like four inches overnight but we maybe got more like six um and the sun has kind of like just popped onto this like north east face 
that, that we're going to drop into. Um, and since I'm, you know, the one who's, who's filming, they're like, okay, well you go first. Uh, and we put the drone out and do the thing. And I drop in and I'm like, I don't know, like three, four turns into this really big line. Um, and I've been skiing a lot of steep stuff last season, but most of it was like in Alaska, which is like the polar opposite uh, of snowpack. Um, as far as like how it bonds to things and stuff. And so I kind of take this turn into this like steep kind of panel. Um, and the turn that I take, like the snow just breaks out underneath me and I'm in like rocks and I get kind of high sided on the rocks and just start end over end. I use the word Tommy Hill figure because white folks say tomahawk so i just took something of theirs in exchange so i'm coming <laughs> down this thing full tommy hill figure rolling down end over end and like that gets that little pocket that i didn't train like my own crash grew the the size of the avalanche quite a bit uh, and so then i go from like okay like i've stopped flipping i've stopped tommying and now I've got to like self arrest inside of an avalanche. And it was, it was crazy. And so I fell about 600 feet and lost both skis and was in this really tricky spot. And, uh, you know, like based on everything we'd read in the avalanche report, it just like was not what we were expecting that day. We'd been out, uh, consecutive days before and, you know, found the snowpack to be like about what we'd expect, which is that like, you can get some pretty good sloughs going in the springtime uh in the in the san juans but you usually like don't entrain any deeper layers because they've kind of corned up underneath and then got frozen back together and you know fresh snow on top of them it's kind of like that perfect setup for us and uh i think we just kind of miscalculated like how steep this face was and how that would play into like how fast the slough was moving and like where it would rip out anyway so ryan who is out skiing for with me for the first time drops in to bring my skis to me. And as he tries to get across, um, you know, makes a bit of a ski cut, um, before crossing over to like sort of where I'm at, uh, or like the face that I'm on. Cause he's on a different part of the mountain that he's dropping in from. Um, and I'm hiding behind a cliff for him to, you know, cut some snow in case more is coming my way. And he makes that cut and it breaks in like a huge uh, just pocket just right above him um, and like out around this little nose. But it takes Ryan with him and he went like 1600 feet at, according to his little, uh, his little watch that he had on that day at like a top speed of like 60 miles an hour essentially just got thrown like 1600 feet off the top of this 55 degree, like huge Alpine face. Um, and yeah, I just watched this, this massive avalanche go by me and everybody radios to me cause they think Ryan's ski cutting something above me and they're avalanche, avalanche, avalanche. And first radio call comes to me and they're like, Connor, are you good? And I'm like, yeah, I'm good. That was crazy. That was a huge avalanche. Never seen something like that in the spring. And they're like, okay, Ryan, like, how'd it look from your spot? Ryan. And they're just going over the thing, you know. Um, and, and Ryan tells us that as he was in the avalanche, he could hear us squawking to him on the radio. Um, and so, unfortunately, Ryan 
ended up uh, with a with a compound fracture of his femur just above the knee, um, and just absolute like worst case kind of scenario with with an injury like that and so it put me in the position of instead of like someone bringing my skis and, and rescuing me um i had to pull the ice axe off my pack and down climb uh to get to ryan as fast as i could and luckily i was able to get there get a tourniquet on him we were able to you know move the rest of the crew around on a different face and have them cut over and get to us and you know, they were on top and had signal, uh, just a lot of things went right for a day that went wrong. Uh, so the Garmin, they, they hit that guy, uh, on the inreach and called folks in town and called search and rescue directly. And, you know, luckily I, I whenever I'm skiing something big, uh, and I'd recommend this for anyone who's like, yeah, I send it in the backcountry. Uh, you, you have to have a sled in your pack, uh, just a little rescue sled. Um, they're a couple hundred bucks. They're super light. They're the most valuable thing that, that I think you could have in your pack beyond your, your beacon shovel and probe, uh, in a first aid kit. And so I was it, we were able to load him into the sled and start getting him down and search and rescue met, met us and got him out the rest of the way, got him onto like a good sled drugs and like a proper, uh, splint and, and got him in the helicopter and got him out of there. And luckily, um, you know, because when I got to Ryan and the way someone ble- bleeds from like the femoral artery is like a lot, you know, um, and just seeing a compound fracture to that degree is a pretty, pretty gnarly thing. Um, and so we, I didn't really know if Ryan was going to make it out of there and I definitely didn't think he was going to keep his leg. Um, but luckily, you know, the amazing first responders, surgeons, nurses, doctors, all the folks who took care of Ryan, um, he's actually walking without crutches right now uh just like what is it six months later so that's really incredible to see wow. and hopefully we'll get to share a few a few turns uh this season you know i've gotten to go and hang out with him and the, the funniest thing um was that ryan and i grew up at like two towns that are like five miles apart and we're like high school football rivals and all these things um but it turns out that my mom and Ryan's mom uh, go to the same yoga class and we just no never way. knew. And so while he was home and his parents were taking care of him and his partner uh, after the surgery, um, he was like five minutes from my house. So it brought us together in this this interesting way and kind of galvanized us around this idea of telling the story a new way um, in our series because just everybody who told the story in the news and online, like they just wanted the the clips from my GoPro and all the stuff. And like, no one was really there to like hear about what I think the real story of it is, which is like, when you go out into the mountains together, when you go out into the back country together, like there's a bond that is, you know, unspoken that Ryan and I both knew in that day. And like, he risked his life to get to me. I risked my life to, to get to him. And like, that's, it's part of what we do in this community of skiing and these search and rescue folks, like they spent their time and take risks to go pull people out of there. And like, none of us are doing this for like the fame or the glory or the money. Cause let me tell you, like none of that is really there. Um, we all do it so that we can share in this collective experience of the mountains. Um, and, and to me, I think like that kind of is the thing at the soul of skiing. Um, 
that that needs to be highlighted again, which is just like, we are all take an incredible risk to feel an incredible feeling. And like, it might not make sense to you if you're not a part of that. Um, but to the people who get that, like they will move to the ends of the earth and find ways to make community work in the most difficult of places and put their trust of their entire life in total strangers um, because of a, a shared trust that I think the mountains really pull out of all of us. I could just listen to you speak for a really long time. Thank you for sharing that. That is a heavy situation. You mentioned that a lot of stuff went right after a lot of stuff had gone wrong. And I think it's just important to reiterate that what went right went right because of your previous knowledge and the courses that you've taken and the education that you've gone through yourself uh, in order to prepare yourself for that situation. I think avalanche courses are incredibly important, but coupled with that are your wilderness first aid courses too. And yeah, thank you for being open and sharing that. I feel like for myself as someone who wants to learn more, like these stories, uh, yeah, you can learn so much from them and apply them to your moments in the mountains where it might be in a similar situation. Yeah, that's yeah, heavy. Absolutely. Well, thanks for being a part of my, my learning journey in that for sure. Um, I think like one of the biggest things to help me really understand a concept is teaching it. And so shout out to the, to the safe as team for inviting me in to, to teach with you all a, a few seasons back. I got to kick it with Elise and, and Jackie and Lel Tone and this just like rad crew that really helped me understand a lot of these things a lot better. And um, yeah, I think that's, that's that role of, of community. And I think the thing that's like truly radical about what we do is finding these ways to build community in, in the environments where, where it's toughest. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I was so sad. I didn't get to be there with you physically when you came on board with safe as that was so special to have you though. And this past winter you were in Juneau. Yeah. Yeah. I spent a lot of time there in the last, in the last couple of seasons, um, working with the Clinket and Haida tribe who's, been and the Douglas Indian Association who've been trying to get their kids out on the snow. Um, you know, it's one of those places that's like the most talked about in skiing as this incredible skiing place. But uh, a lot of the indigenous kids who live there, you know, will never have a chance to, to ski or snowboard in this like mecca of free skiing. So yeah, I've been spending a lot of time up there. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. And then you have a series coming out. You've kind of briefly spoken about that. Yeah, that I did. Come out. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited. So this will be this will be coming out uh, all throughout this winter, uh, starting in November. Um, and the series is called The New Radical. And I think it's really, uh, you know, a bit of an exploration, if you will, in defining like that, that space that I think we've been talking about that like is in the heart of so many skiers, so many boarders, climbers, whatever, runners, right? Um, where like we feel this kinship and this connection and this obligation that that comes with our bond to these sports and our bond to these communities. And so the new radical is like kind of finding like, okay, like what we've considered radical in our sport for so long is really just the baseline at this point like oh yeah like you shred big mountains you do this and that like um but also addressing it from the point of like yeah that's a given and what's a given by definition can no longer like be radical right like in order for something to be radical it needs to be 
new and it needs to be revolutionary. Um, and so this series is really focused, I think, on finding the revolution uh, within the sport right now, which is to say, like, I don't think like, you know, adding an extra rotation to a flip or a spin at this point is like, I've watched it throughout my life go from like 720 to like 4250 or like whatever. Can't count that high. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's crazy. And it's like, yeah, that's cool. And like, I'm not saying that that's not an integral part of the sport anymore, uh, but it's not the radical part anymore. Like that's dope. I'll celebrate it. We'll celebrate that a lot in the series. There's a ton of sick skiing in there. Um, But really this is about the stories of like, why we ski and what connects us to community and so um we'll be talking about the avalanche we'll be skiing with indigenous youth from the taos pueblo um who are down there skiing on on their homelands the taos ski valley uh and, and just a whole bunch of different stories like that of really finding like okay like we can agree on uh you know the fact that this this sport you know brings us together but then like what do we do as together what are our values and how do we take action so it's really me uh kind of on that that learning journey of like what really feels uh like the change we need what feels cool and exciting in these ways and so yeah we kind of got a a pilot season coming out this year uh made it with isaiah uh branch boyle who was the uh dp on uh all the mountain stuff in spirit of the peaks um, so he's like a bit of the, the Bjarne to my Cody where you're like, okay, like sometimes Bjarne is kind of more badass Cause he's like, <laughs> like hanging onto the side of a wall, like a cat while filming something. And so Isaiah is that, that guy for me been just like a huge, like in that mentor kind of role as far as like how to really exist in the mountains. Um, and so we, we've teamed up to, to put this series together, um, teamed up with, with Brian Cole, who produces the 50 Project. And so we're hoping we can put together something that's uh, that's really incredible and hopefully continues to, to push the sport, you know, in these new directions, you know, similarly to like how the 50 Project uh, pushed backcountry to like the center of the focus of the skiing world. Uh, I think, you know, our goal, um, with this series is like, how do we push our community values that we share uh, to the center of the skiing world? And how do we prioritize that and celebrate that and talk about that more? Because I think it's there. Uh, I think we've all been feeling it, but a a lot of the media that we create has not celebrated that and has just celebrated like this other form of progression over and over. And it's like, yeah, like that's progression, but like, let's diversify the perfect progression. So that'll be uh, the new radical and that'll be coming out this fall and winter. I love that. I feel like it's so in line with like kind of how I've been adjusting my thought process in the mountains and my approach to skiing. And then also just my, I guess, you know, larger perspective over our industry and what we champion and who we champion and why. And like, I think that there is, we're in a moment of shifting, like what it means to be the best athlete and, and, I mean, I used to think about it as like, oh, it's a person who sells the most gear. Like, that's why they're getting paid. But there's actually so much behind that of like these different pillars, which makes athletes who they are. And part of that is like so far away from your athletic achievements. And I think that that well-rounded 
ness of an athlete is actually what we should champion and like you you've got to be a pillar of your community you've got to be giving back and yeah I don't know I'm really excited to see that that's awesome thank you for sharing that with us yeah it'll be great we gotta maybe it'll be a good excuse for us to for us to team up learn a little bit more about uh what Palisades is doing with the with the Washoe tribe and the name change and all those things we could we could do a little episode together uh, maybe this season and finally get finally get out on the snow together. I feel like I we're, would love that. We're always talking or bumping into each other in the summertime or something like that. But uh, yeah, yeah, we're overdue. Not not to put you on the spot and no, I would be so honored. Podcast, but, uh, <laughs> be I'm into it. I would be so incredibly honored. Yeah, I think the first time we met in person actually was when you were doing the break the bicycle ride for yep. black and indigenous men's mental health. And you were in Denver and you, you all put a post up like, we could use some snacks and some support. And I was like, I've been there, I'm coming in. <laughs> yeah, that was such a pleasure to get to link with you in person then. Yeah, that was a great one and a, a awesome stop along that adventure. I definitely want to, I'll never forget when people are like, have you met Michelle Parker? She's so cool. I'm like, actually. <laughs> She brought me groceries in a park in Denver once. It was great. That was the best. And I feel the same with you. Thank you so much, Connor. It's always yeah. just a pleasure to hear you speak. And I think you are, Lynn put it perfectly. You're driven, you're articulate, you're verbose and intensely self-reflective. And it, it shows in the way that you approach these subjects and how you speak about them. It's so eloquent and like, yeah, you're a storyteller. It's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for having me on, Michelle. Yeah, absolutely. Let's wrap this up. In closing, I want to thank Connor for joining me and having this conversation, which I feel like I could have just continued for hours as I truly love hearing Connor speak. Keep a lookout for Connor's project, which will be dropping within the next month. Give him a follow, and if you can, support your local Indigenous nonprofit or at least become familiar with it. Thank you for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Care Less, Do More.